Who are the real people we consider our sages? Who were they in life? What is the legacy they left us? Join Rabbi Danny Saxton for the next hour as he explores the lives of our Torah giants, the spiritual geniuses who shaped the way we approach Judaism today. That's Focus on Our Sages right now on 101.9 High FM. Good afternoon and welcome to Sol. It's a great pleasure to be with you to speak about interesting ideas with regard to the Jewish people and concepts that are relevant to a Jew and uh, that we learn from the Torah. I want to start out with mentioning that yesterday was the third of Teves. Teves um, is the Hebrew month and the third of Teves is the Yotzad of Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz. Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz was born in 1902 in Lithuania, and he passed away in 1979. So this makes it the 20 sec- the 42nd Yosat of uh, Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz yesterday. And he was... This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. We apologize uh, for the technical difficulties. I think we lost our connection, but it's good to be back with you. So I'm not ex- exactly sure where uh, we got cut off, but let's carry Yeshiva for over 40 years. And he survived the Holocaust by escaping to Shanghai together with the rest of the Yeshiva. And we're going to talk quite a bit about the details of that incredible um, miracle that so many survived in that way. Um, after the war, Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz re- uh, returned. He he went to Jerusalem and he re-established the Mir Yeshiva in Jerusalem. And today, um, the Mir Yeshiva has more than 5,000 students and is the largest Torah learning institution in the world, um, very much built on the foundations that Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz laid um, after World War II. And his uh, ethical discourses are, uh, in Hebrew, it's a real classic. Um, his Sichas uh, Musa is what his famous work is called. It's been public, translated into English as well. Uh, real classic understandings of, of Torah and of life and of the growth and development of the human being. That was the great genius, Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz. So let's talk now about that event that, that uh, allowed Rabbi Chaim to survive the war. The incredible, miraculous escape of the Mir Yeshiva from Lithuania. And as a result, the Mir Yeshiva was re-established in Israel and is today the primary Torah learning institution in the world. Many, many South Africans have learned in the Mir Yeshiva. And many are currently learning in the Mir Yeshiva. And its influence and its impact and its uh, role that the Mir Yeshiva plays in the development and growth and education of each generation within Klai Israel is absolutely immense. And that's primarily comes from the work of Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, whose your site we remember yesterday. So, let's discuss what happened. How did the Meir survive? We know tragically that um, most, in fact, all of the other great Torah learning institutions of Europe were wiped out, were completely destroyed. Um, the, uh, of course, the buildings were destroyed. Some of the buildings still remain in, in, in 
and are now used for interesting purposes. But um, the teachers and the, the, the Rabonim, the Talmudim were all murdered. They were wiped out by the Nazis. They were killed with a few, very few exceptions. So how is it that the mere yeshiva didn't suffer the same fate and survived? So what happened was um, when the Nazis and the Russians had the their pact, the Molotov-Ribbentrop pact, in which they decided, they agreed that they would split Poland between them, um, and the Nazis then, on the 1st of September 1939, voted, invaded Poland, and World War II began. So that, and, and uh, the Russians got their section, their chunk of Eastern Europe, um, as per the agreement. Lithuania then fell under Russian rule, but Vilna, the capital of Lithuania, became um, the, uh, the – it was an international city. It wasn't yet controlled by the Russians. The Russians ga- gave, uh, for whatever reason, Vilna a little bit of, of, its, of space to have its own rule. And therefore, it seemed to be the only safe place for the yeshivas to find haven because, as we know, um, the Nazis uh, wanted to murder all of the Jews. And the Russians wanted to destroy Yiddishkeit. The Russians were no friends of the Jewish people, and they did not allow the study of Torah, and they did not allow the observance of Torah and mitzvahs. So they were also open enemies of Klai Israel. And so many of the yeshivas at that time, 1939-1940, before Operation Barbarossa, before the Germans attacked Russia in 1941, many of them found haven in Vilna. In fact, we have the writings of Rav Chaim who was the great leader of Lithuanian Jewry in Vilna. And he writes that um, there, are, there were over 40 yeshivas that had come to Vilna. That means hundreds of Bukharim. And he said that uh, he, he wrote to America. He, he sent a telegram to America saying that the um, conditions are very, very difficult and very rough. And the, um, they needed money desperately to be able to house and to be able to food um, many of these thousands of, of students that had now come to Vilna, um, and he p- plead for help to the, uh, the Jews in America to help assist and support this humanitarian crisis which was taking place um, just before the, the, the Germans actually invaded. And so those that were lucky enough to have reached Vilna and were now under this temporary uh, rule of an international city and not controlled by the Russians or the Germans yet, but they knew it was just a matter of time. Either the Russians would come in or the Germans would come, and they knew that their lives were in danger, were in absolute peril, that their, their, um, their uh, chances of surviving these dangerous times were very, very low unless they got out. And everybody was desperately and frantically trying to find a way to get out of Europe before it was too late. And it was very difficult to get out. It was almost impossible. Um, how would one be able to get a visa to a country that would accept Jews where the world had shut its doors to all the Jews? There was nowhere to go and there was no way to, to leave. And so um, we're going to discuss now how it actually was that the Mi Yeshiva got visas and were able to escape Europe and end up in Shanghai for the rest of the war. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment.
This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. We're talking about the miraculous survival of the Mir Yeshiva and their escape to Shanghai. Um, they found themselves, like many other thousands of Yeshiva Bochrim, in Vilna uh, just before the Germans moved east and attacked the Russians. And everybody at that time, uh, from the time World War, World War II broke out, which is September 1939, up until um, June 1941, in that small time, they all tried their, their, their utmost to escape Europe and knew what was coming and the very dark cloud that was on the horizon. And so in order to get out of Europe, one needed to have a visa to a country that would accept the, that person, that individual. And it was very, very difficult to come by a visa because the, um, the consulists of the countries around the world shut their doors to the Jews. And we're not interested in taking um, hundreds of thousands of Jews that were escaping the Nazis. And so the Jews literally had nowhere to go. And everybody was, you know, uh, trying, probing, looking for ways out and for solutions. And um, there was a a student in the Meir Yeshiva who was in, in Vilna at the time who had a, a friend who was actually a a Dutch diplomat. This individual was a person who... Um, was he, he actually represented Philips, which was a Dutch company, but he also was part-time uh, a diploma, diplomat in the Dutch consulate. And he told his friend, who was a student in the Mir Yeshiva, he said to him that there's a Dutch colony in the Caribbean called Curaçao, and uh, Curaçao would uh, accept anybody who um, wanted to come there, oh, but they, as long as they had special permission from the governor. Now, um, so what he said is that on the permit to enter into Curaçao, it says Curaçao accepts anybody um, who wants to come. And it, and and but underneath that it says with a letter um, of welcome from the governor. But what he said is that he was prepared for the students of the Mir Yeshiva to write a letter without that second sentence. So Kurosai is prepared to accept anybody who wants to come. And he left out the second part of the sentence and he put in the stamp over there. So this young man went to those individuals who were uh, representing the yeshiva, who ran the yeshiva, and told them what this possibility was. They were very excited to hear it. But then they had to had, have a transit visa in order to get to Kurosai. And um, how would they get proof? When they're leaving Europe, when they're at the borders of, the, you know, of Lithuania, that they had a transit visa in order to get to Corsa, that would also be necessary, um, unless they can get a ship directly there, which was not available, which was not possible. So, there was at that time in um, Kovno, which was the other capital city of of, um, of Lithuania. So there was Vilna and there was Kovno, and both of them were still independent cities. There was an individual by the name of Sampi Sugihara. He was a, a Japanese diplomat. And Sugihara was once in a store, in a grocery store. And there was a 
from Kid who was there, and he saw this Japanese man and this little boy. I think he was 11 or 12 years old. He had never seen an Oriental person. He was very fascinated by how Sugihara looked. And he went over to him and he said, I would love you to come and visit my family. We're having a Hanukkah party tomorrow night. Please join us at our Hanukkah party. And Sugihara said, okay, thank you. That's very kind of you. Um, yes, my, my wife and I will join you. It was his second wife. And, uh, and so they went to this Jewish family and they enjoyed themselves very much. And they, they obviously knew the language. They had a common language to speak. And um, Sugihara actually writes in his diary that he couldn't believe how much these Jewish people spoke and how much these Jewish people ate. <laughs> Those were the two points that stood out for him in his diary. But he had a wonderful time and he had a very good positive interaction with these Jewish people who were locals of Kovno. And then he saw in front of him this humanitarian crisis unfolding. He himself actually, interestingly enough, Sugihara was not a... Um, he was sent there as a diplomat, but like many diplomats, he was actually sent to gather information about the Russians and the movements of the Russians in Lithuania, um, which he did, and he reported back to Tokyo. But he was a, a very uh, kind-hearted person. He was a compassionate person. He was uh, definitely one of the righteous of the nations of the world, no question about it. And he saw as the events unfolded how desperate the Jewish population had become because they knew that their lives were in peril. And they were desperate to try and find a way to get out, and obviously nobody was issuing visas. But when um, a representative of the Mir Shiva approached him and said, look, we have a, a, a permit, a document that says we can go to Khorasan, um, would you allow us to have a, a transit visa through Japan? So we go via Japan to Kurosawa. Would that be possible? And he, he um, asked his superiors in Tokyo whether that would be allowed. They said, unless a person has a clear end, uh, de departure date uh, from where they were in order to get to Kurosawa um, and they have a ticket to, to leave, um, you cannot uh, 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 issue them with transit visas. But he ignored those instructions. And even if a person didn't have a clear um, exit date, he said, okay. He said to the representative of the Minya Shiva that he would actually issue them with the visas. And word got out very quickly within the Jewish community, spread like wildfire, that there was a Japanese diplomat who was prepared to, to issue these transit visas. And in no time at all, at the Japan, Japanese consulate in Kovno, there were masses of Jews that, that – were um, wanting to get this document from Sugihara, and I've actually been uh, I've been to Kovno and I've been to the uh, Japanese consulate, which now is a museum, and they show you you know exactly um, Sugihara's desk and and the documents that he issued for them, and he saw um, how desperate these people were, and it broke his heart, and he decided that he wanted to to help them. And he was prepared to issue this transit visa for anybody who had a travel document. Many of them didn't have passports even. Um, a lot of them just, they, they had uh, uh, any sort of identification document. He would stamp on it um, based on that document that that individual could tra have a transit visa through Japan. Um, he even w uh, was, he even permitted the use of uh, vaccination certificates that had a picture on them. Even those were good enough for him. 
And in those months um, leading up to um, the, the, the beginnings of the, you know, the end of the Jews, um, before the Germans uh, had uh, conquered, in those few months, I think there were eight or nine months, he issued, well, I think it was less than that actually, it was about, it was about six months or something like that, he issued 5,000 visas to people who wanted them. He was the only one in all of Lithuania who was doing it. Five thousand. He worked day and night. He had a representative of Mir Shiva helping him. He actually had, it's just an amazing story, there was an SS officer who was assigned to the Japanese um, consulate also to keep his eye open and see and to communicate with, with the Japanese because they were allies of the Germans. And he, he, he convinced the SS officer to allow this to happen. And the SS officer actually wrote a letter to one of the Jews that he issued the visa to, that he allowed these to be, and he said, um, after the war, this might come and save me. Please remember me. Um, who knows what the, uh, what the next years will bring. Unbelievable thing. Um, and so, Sugihara, with all the help he could get, was issuing these visas day and night. And 5,000 of such visas were, were, were issued, and amongst them were for the 400 students of the Mir Yeshiva. Now, I mean, in order for them to be able to get out, they now had the transit visa. They now had the, the destination visa at uh, Kurosaw. So they now had to um, have enough money to pass through. They had to travel on the Trans-Siberian Railway to Moscow and then to Vladivostok, which was the port that they would go to. And from there they would go to Japan and then so-called from there they would go to Kurosaw. But in order to do so, they had to get permission from the Russian tourist ministry. And the Russian tourist ministry would only accept the, the documents were, even if the documents were correct, they had to pay for the transit on the Trans-Siberian Railway. They had to have money. Now, the only currency they would accept was dollars. And it was prohibited at that time to have dollars. If you were caught with US dollars, it was a punishable offense. So they had to raise a large amount of money and they turned, the ministry returned to the United States to the Joint Distribution Commit, Committee, which was helping Jews in Europe. Um, and they had to raise this money to save the lives of these Jews. And they raised the money, and they paid it to the uh, Russian tourist ministry. And once you were a tourist, um, and that was approved by the tourist ministry of the Russians, you were allowed, the, 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 your uh, train tickets were paid for, your hotels were paid for, there was meals that were paid for. They were treated as tourists tra- traveling through Russia. And that's exactly what happened. They were able to raise the money just in time. They were able to pay these uh, train tickets and the expenses of traveling through Russia. And so they went and they traveled through Russia, through Moscow and through Russia. And they arrived at um, the – they went to Vladivostok. And from there, um, they arrived in Kobe in Japan. And uh, the, the Germans had heard about it. And the Germans contacted the Japanese, their allies, and they told the Japanese that when this group of Jews arrives, when these Jews arrive from Vladivostok, you must kill them. You must kill these Jews. And the Japanese diplomat who actually had um, negotiated the terms with the Germans of their agreement, he said, our agreement, our agreement does not include anything about your anti-Semitic policies. We're going to be allies with regards to the war. But your anti-Semitic policies are not part of what we've agreed to in terms of how we, um, how we operate in Japan. 
which is absolutely unbelievable. They were in Kobe for less than a year, and the Nazis were still trying to, to kill them, were pursuing them. And in fact, because the Nazis were putting on so much pressure, um, the admirals, which were already running the, the Japanese government at the time, they said to the, to these Jews that they wanted, um, to speak to them. They wanted representatives of the Jews to appear in front of the leading admirals, um, of the Japanese Navy. And so the, the part of the delegation of Jews of, and the students of the Mary Shiva were three great rabboning, was Reb Shlomo Shapiro, there was the Amshin of Arebi, and there was Rav Moshe um, Shatkis. Rav Moshe Shatkis that became one of the uh, uh, Rabbonim in Yeshiva University after the war. And the three of them then appeared in front of these three admirals. And the admirals said to them, they said to them, why is it that the Nazis hate you so much? Why do they, why are they killing and persecuting your people? And why are they putting so much pressure on us to, to kill you? There must have been something that you did to them that they are so aggrieved and and um, are so aggressive towards you. So the Amshanov review answered the question. And they actually, by, by the way, uh, at the meeting was a professor of language, of linguistics, who spoke fluent Hebrew. Um, and he was Japanese from, from Tokyo. And he later actually became a Gerasthetic. He converted to Judaism. So he was there. And the Amshan of Arabi said, which he translated to the admirals, he said that the reason why they hate us is because we are Oriental people like you. We are from the Middle East, and you just happen to be further east to where we come from. We come from Israel, which is in the Middle East. And he said, the Amshan of Arabi said that the Germans are building a nation of Ubermenschen, what they call these um, Aryans, which they say is the superior race, and their superior race are blue-eyed, blonde-haired, tall people, and they say they're going to. These people are going to dominate the world, and therefore they came for us because we have Oriental descent. And when they finish with us, they're going to come for you because sitting in this room, I don't see any blue-eyed, tall, um, uh, blonde people. So we first on the list, but then they're going to move further east and they're going to come for you. And this was translated to the admirals. The admirals had a bit of a discussion amongst themselves and they said um, straight away on the spot, they said as long as you're in Japanese territory, you will be protected and no harm will come to you. That's what they told these Rabonim. And so it was. And it, isn't that unbelievable? Quite incredible. What an incredible story. The Amshan of Arebi, the genius of, of this, of this Rav, who uh, said that to the admirals, and the admirals uh, were were um, in agreement, and they accepted that as a as a valid answer, and promised them to protection. So the Jews then were um, uh, they didn't stay in Kobe long. They were they were, were then sent to Shanghai. So Shanghai was an open city at the time, and uh, in Shanghai, Shanghai is part of China, but that was controlled by the Japanese. And they allowed them to go to Shanghai and this open city. And at the time, Shanghai actually had a, a Jewish community. There were some Sephardi Jews that established a kahila over there that were doing business there. And there also were a number of other refugees that already had arrived in Shanghai. And uh, the Germans actually sent a representative to Shanghai in order to kill all the Jews over there. The individual who was in charge of the liquidation of the Warsaw Ghetto 
was the one that they sent to Shanghai. His name was Massinger, and uh, the Japanese prevented him from harming the Jews, from from hurting the Jews, and the Jews were untouched. They were moved into a ghetto area in Shanghai, um, and obviously there was overcrowding. It was the conditions were terrible. It was very humid. There was no hygiene. There was very little food. Um, but they, um, relative to a death camp and to being exterminated, it was bearable. And um, they were called stateless refugees. So therefore, they couldn't stay in, in, in Japan. They had to move to Shanghai. And uh, they were they successfully arrived over there. They were they, they were able to be there. Now, listen to this amazing extension of the story in Shanghai. There was actually a place, um, there was a shul called the Haradu Shul, and it was built by a non-religious Jew. There was a non-religious Jew who lived in Shanghai, and he was a wealthy man, and he gave a lot of charity to the, the Chinese. And his father came to him in a dream, and in the dream his father told, told him, you've given a lot to the Chinese, you now have to give to your own people, to the Jewish people. He was a secular Jew, but he then, as a result of that dream, decided to build a shul, and he built a large shul. Um, called the Haradu Shul. And um, not only did he build a shul, but part of the shul was a hall and there was a kitchen. He built all of these facilities for the Jewish people in Shanghai. And just before the war, he had passed away, he had died, but this facility was available. So the stu- students, the Mir Yeshiva students, were in the ghetto, and this, uh, this Haradu Shul was about an hour walk from the ghetto, but they were given permits by the Japanese authorities to leave the ghetto and to go to the shul every day. And actually, it was very good for them to have an hour walk there. An hour walk back was very healthy and uh, because there was a lot of uh, sickness going around. It enabled them to be healthy and enabled them to continue um, to be strong and to learn Torah. And they were then in the shul. There were 400 seats in the shul, exactly the amount, the same number of students that there were in the yeshiva were the seats in the shul. They had uh, dining facilities, they had a kitchen, and that's where they were. That's how they survived the war. In fact, we have pictures of Reb Chaim Shmulevitz in the Space Midrash, the great Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, who was yesterday, and that's why we're talking about this topic. We've got pictures of him in the shul, and uh, and that's how they survived. In fact, they printed Sforim. They learned Torah there diligently throughout the war. They printed Sforim. We have a Rambam. It was printed in Shanghai. We have Gomorrah, we have Midrashim, we have the writings of the Alta of Slobodka that were printed in Shanghai. Quite unbelievable. So that's how the Mir Yeshiva survived the war, and that's how they, many of them went then to Eretzral, to Yerushalayim, many of them went to America and established the Mir Yeshiva in New York, and that's how the Mir Yeshiva survived the war. And that's, and that's how the Mir Yeshiva today is the largest Torah learning institution in the world. Um, Led by, was led by Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, as your started was yesterday, and this is the story of his miraculous survival and their miraculous survival in World War II. Please stay with us, we'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. So let's move on now and discuss a very interesting topic that we um, want to look at, and that is um, the subject of um, Yosef Hatzadik. Yosef Hatzadik was the great, righteous, holy individual who our great um, 
ancestor in Mitzrayim. And the parshas we're reading now um, talk about the story of Yaakov and of his sons and of um, the famine that took place at the time and of Yosef going to uh, Mitzrayim. Yosef was then, he was sold by his brothers into slavery and he was the um, servant of Potiphar who was the um, the one of the uh, high up powerful people in Egypt in Pharaoh's cabinet and Potiphar's wife um, is uh, takes a liking to Yosef. Yosef was exceptionally good looking and she couldn't resist him and she tried to seduce him and he refused her efforts and she then fabricated a plot against Yosef because he had refused her and um, as a result Yosef was sent to jail because of these fabricated accusations against him. And Yosef spent 12 years in an Egyptian jail, and he was able to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh's baker and of Pharaoh's butler. Pharaoh's baker's dream came um, to fruition, and he was killed, and uh, as Yosef had interpreted, and Pharaoh's butler, um, likewise, his dream, um, exactly as Yosef interpreted, was that he would once more be pouring the drinks of the king of Pharaoh. And when Pharaoh himself had this disturbing dream, this terrible dream, he, the butler remembered that uh, it was already two years since he was released from prison, that there was this Ivory, this Jew in jail that interpreted his dream accurately. And so he um, tells Pharaoh, after Pharaoh is, is distraught, Pharaoh is uh, in a depression, Pharaoh is very anxious from these repeated dreams that he's having and there's no satisfactory interpretation that he can find from anybody in Mitzrayim and so as a last resort they bring this this little Jew from the jail and they present him to Pharaoh Pharaoh tells him his dream and Yosef interprets the dream and the dream is that there will be seven years of famine first there will be seven years of plenty and then they will be completely consumed by seven years of famine so severe the likes of which Mitzrayim, Egypt, has never seen before. And so um, Pharaoh is very impressed by this interpretation. And he says to his advisors, do we have anybody who will be able to carry out? Um, Yosef recommends to them that because the um, seven years of plenty are upon them, they should save up enough grain and enough produce that they could survive the severe famine. And uh, Pharaoh says, is there anybody who can do this for us, who's so wise and has the ability to carry out this operation successfully, and all the um, all the the uh, the advisors of Pharaoh shake their heads and they say, "No, there's nobody. We don't see anybody who can do such a thing." And so they um, they look they um, look to Yosef and say, "Well, he's the one. He's the one. He must do it." Pharaoh says, "You are now appointed as my two RC second in command." And you will be the one who will carry out this operation for all of Egypt. And so Yosef um, begins to save the grain and to set up massive warehouses and storehouses to save grain and to ensure that the Egyptians will be able to survive the famine. And uh, seven years pass and then the famine begins. And the severity of the famine was, as Yosef predicted, extremely, extremely harsh on the entire region. And now Yaakov, who thinks his son Yosef has been killed, sends, uh, his, he gets word that there is um, food in Egypt, that they could purchase food in, in Egypt. 
Egyptians are the only ones who have any um, any produce left. And so the Yosef sends his sons down to Egypt to buy food from from Yosef from from the Egyptians. But um, Yosef knows that his family will come because there's no food in Canaan in the north, and he sets up um, his own uh, intelligence network to ensure that these uh, that they should look out for ten brothers who are coming in to buy food from the land of, of Canaan from Canaan, and so he. Um, they are identified by Yosef's uh, agents, and they're brought to Yosef. And Yosef recognizes them, but they don't recognize him because, as she said, he didn't have a beard when he left, but now he does have a beard. And so Yosef sends them on this wild goose chase. And he first he, he um, hosts them, and he uh, asks them who they are, asks them what family they come from. He asks them if their father – if the, the brother's father is alive If they have any other siblings And he lets them buy um, Grain from him And he then instructs His servants to put The money that they paid for the grain Back in their sacks of grain And uh, he does so And they go back and return back home When they get home they open up the sacks of grain And they all see their money's there They're absolutely frightened They've got no idea what's going on They think they're being set up they, They're very very nervous but he says to them, if they want to come back again and bring more grain and, and buy more food, they're going to have to bring their youngest brother because they told him their youngest brother is still with their father in Canaan. If they want, so Yosef says, I suspect you all of being spies, and the only way I will allow you to buy more food if you return is if you bring your younger brother with you. So Yosef, of course, is setting up the situation in order to test them to see if they've done chuva. If they have repented from the terrible act of sen- of sending them, so please stay with us. We're going to discuss the dramatic uh, meeting of Yosef and his brother Binyamin, and what happens from there. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on one hundred one point nine High FM. Discussing Yosef and his brothers. Yosef is now the second most powerful man in the world, the prime minister of Egypt, and he sees his brothers, he recognizes his brothers, he sends them back home with their money that they brought to purchase grain. And he says, if you want to appear again in front of me, you need to bring your younger brother. And Yaakov's very, they run out of food, Yaakov's very reluctant to send Binyamin, but eventually he has no choice, and he sends them all down, and Yosef sees his brother Binyamin and he gives – they don't know it's Yosef. They think it's the prime minister of Egypt. Gives Binyamin a hug and he says, May Hashem find grace in you, my son. He sets up all of the brothers in order of their age when he gives them food, sends them back. Also, again, sends them back with their money in their sacks. And this time he puts his cup in Binyamin's sack. He instructs his servants to do so. The brothers leave. They send um, – uh, he, Yosef then sends his soldiers to go get them And to say that they've stolen his cup And they've stolen the money Brings them all back And he says to them That the one whose bag Whose sack My cup My goblet is found in He's got Must be my slave My servant And Yehuda stands up 
And Yehuda says, I guaranteed my father that no harm would come to my youngest brother. And he, our other brother is already gone. And my father won't be able to survive and rather take me. And I'm, I'm stronger than him. And I will be more productive to you as a servant and let my brother go back to our father. For our father won't be able to endure such a trauma. And Yosef then can't hold himself back anymore. And in one of the most dramatic parts of the entire Torah, Yosef breaks down and he reveals himself to his brothers. He tells everybody in his court to leave. It's just him and his brothers. And he says, Ani Yosef od avichai. I'm Yosef. Is our father still alive? In other words, are you, t- are you telling the truth? And the Pasuk says that the brothers were completely flabbergasted. They answer and they say, Lo la'anos The brothers were speechless. They couldn't say a word because they trembled mipanav in his presence in front of him from his face. They, they completely trembled. They were they were just so flabbergasted that this was the case. And there's an amazing, amazing Midrash. The Midrash tells us, the Midrash says that the, the, uh, uh, the Midrash says, Woe is it to us on the day of judgment. Woe is it to us on the day of rebuke that Yosef, who's the youngest of the brothers, left his brother speechless when he revealed himself. How much more so? When Hashem reveals himself to all of us, to all of humanity, how speechless are we all going to be? So it's an amazing midrash, a very powerful midrash. And it, it, it says that at the end of days, when we leave this world and we're confronted by our creator, so just like the brothers were, were flabbergasted and speechless, we are going to be too when we see the Melech Malchem Lachim HaKadosh Baruch the king of the world. And we realize our life, the choices we made. The, the way we decided to live our life, we will be exposed and we will be trembling and we will, it will all swim into focus and clarity at that moment, um, in terms of the, the way we lived our lives and the truth of the world and the truth of the universe when we see God. There's just one point I want to comment on on this Midrash, which is very powerful. And that is, the Midrash tells us that law, uh, the, uh, uh, law, 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 so really grammatically it should say, that they were trembling from him, from Yosef. So the explanation I heard in this Midrash from Rabbi Elephant, which is very beautiful, is that Mipanav means it's from his face. It means that the Yosef's face resembled Yaakov. The fact that he was Yosef was clear and obvious for them to see. But they were so caught up in their own vested interests. They were so caught up in their own agenda. They were so taken up with the way they saw things and the way they had interpreted things that the truth which was staring them in the face didn't have any impact on them. They completely ignored it. And that's what this Midrash is saying, is all the more so all of us when we, Hashem's going to show us that the truth of life and the truth of the world and the truth of our existence was staring us in the face, was obvious and was clear. And we chose to ignore us Ignore it because of our own agendas, because of our own vested interests, because of what's called in Hebrew our own negius. We were like, don't uh, confuse me with the truth. Don't bother me with the facts. We ignored the truth. Mipanav that was right under our noses and in front of us. And that's going to be the humiliation on Yom Adin um, when we see our Kodesh Baruch Hu and when Hashem reveals the truth of the world to us. Very, very powerful midrash and very, very powerful words that we should all take to heart. 
and make the right choices before it's too late and before we see that we missed the whole point of our existence. Thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful day.